Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. It is recognised that the Northern Territory has one of the highest rates of suicide in Australia, if not the world. But why? Joining us to explore factors behind these shocking statistics is this week's podcast guest, Robert Parker. Initially completed a Bachelor of Arts degree in archaeology before working on the Tiwi Islands in the Northern Territory for three years as an art and craft advisor. Robert began his career in mental health by training in medicine and psychiatry. He is currently an associate professor in psychiatry at Flinders University, South Australia, and the director of psychiatry with Top End Mental Health Services in the Northern Territory. Robert is a past chair of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Mental Health Committee for the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. He's also been president of the Northern Territory branch of the Australian Medical Association for the last eight years. Throughout this time, he has published several articles on Indigenous mental health and suicide. Stay tuned as Robert joins me to reflect on the potential reasons and influences for suicide rates being so high in the Northern Territory in the context of 20 years working as a psychiatrist in the region. Thanks very much for coming in. Robert Parker, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce you and share your story with our listeners. How does someone who studied archaeology get into psychiatry? Tell us how it all started for you and the journey that took you to where you are today. All right. Well, I um, originally did an arts degree at Sydney Uni in the 70s, and that's where I got interested in archaeology. And at the same time, I was working in an Aboriginal art and craft gallery down in Sydney just to earn a bit of money part-time while I was a uni student. And um, I finished my arts course. I was a bit of a loose end, so I continued to work in the Aboriginal arts gallery. And I heard about an archaeological dig up in Kakadu in 1977, uh, it was August, so we ended up on Jabaluka Billabong. We were actually swimming in the Billabong in those days. There were no crocodiles, so you could actually swim and not get eaten. Is that right? Um, yeah, it was amazing. But um, it was a r- remarkable sight, and we were actually uh, Big Bill Noichi, who was the traditional owner, came in camp with us, and we had it was actually done with the full permission of the traditional owners, and we had a number of quite eminent Indigenous people as part of the dig, including Ted Wilkes, who's now a very senior yeah. Aboriginal man in Western Australia, and um, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. I had enjoyed there for a month, enjoyed the territory. And 
when I got back to Sydney, I heard about a, a job on the Tiwi Islands doing Aboriginal art and craft as part of the connection with the art gallery. So I ended up on the uh, Tiwi Islands for three years doing Aboriginal art and craft there. And so I met my wife, who's an Aboriginal health worker on the island, who was. And we have a proud father of three Aboriginal daughters. And my wife's still working in the, the Aboriginal health worker field. So I, um, I suppose I lived on the Tiwis. I got a, even though I wasn't no, non-medical at that stage, I got a pretty good appreciation of a lot of the cultural issues on the Tiwi and also a lot of the, the problems at the time, particularly with alcohol and its effect on family mm-hmm. issues. Anyway, and so there was a, a GP called Dr Pat Rebgitz who used to visit the island regularly and I got to talking with Pat and um, was very inspired by his mission in life, which was to be to actually serve the Tiwis and he actually ended up moving with his family to the Tiwi Islands to live there. But anyway, he, he inspired me to go off and do medicine. So I, I applied to the Newcastle Medical School, which was just in its early days and was accepted at some stage and uh, went down there and did a medical degree. Wow, what was life like on the Tiwi Islands? Well, it was actually a lot of, I had a lot of fun. I mean, I was working with some really senior traditional elders who were a lot, great characters. Wilfred Palakwi, Declan Apuatimi, Raphael Apuatimi. Raphael was my boss and he had a tremendous life. He'd gone to Darwin as a young man, played football for Fizz and Mary's. He was a, a sort of leader in the community and leader in the arts field. He he was actually awarded an Order of Australia later in life. Mm. He didn't want to wear it, so he actually got the Tiwi design guys to print him a T-shirt with his Order of Australia on so he could wear his Order of Australia T-shirt. <laughs> but Rafa was a, was, a, was a very generous, very kind boss, and we got on really well. Declan was, you know, a, Declan, who was one of my favourite carvers, was, a, was also a tremendous character. I always remember he, you know, and, and it sort of reflected the the long lineage of the Tiwis and the connection with the greater Asian area. We used to get a lot of VIPs visiting the island to come and look at Tiwi design. At one stage, a, an Indonesian general turned up with his wife, was touring the Tiwi design, and Declan popped down to have a chat to me about something and saw the general and wandered up to him and started talking fluent Bahasa Indonesia to him. And the general, general was amazed. The general's wife was even more amazed. But Declan, mm. when he was a young boy, he just jumped on a a Japanese fishing boat and um, spent a couple of years in the Straits of Malacca working on a Japanese fishing boat because the Japanese used to come at that stage and come were regular visitors to the um, to the island, mainly for pearling, but also for other things. And so, you know, there was a very strong connection with the with local area. I basically had work with the carvers, used to go out and get ironwood, scour the forest for seasoned ironwood for them, my two apprentices. And then we'd come back. We could also get the raw materials such as okra and sift and give it to the carvers and they'd come back with some pretty remarkable carvings. So um, had a had a great time. It was uh, good fun. How important is art in a culture, especially with amongst the Tiwi Islands and the Indigenous culture? Well, again, it represented the the advanced culture of the Tiwis. I mean, the, the Tiwis... Um, in fact, Tiwi design... Every Tiwi carver had their own personal motive... It was slightly different, I think, to Arnhem Land where there was a lot more meaning in the motive, but it actually just was like Declan always painted the same motive, which was his design, and I think represented his kin and his culture and his land. But there wasn't a... Unlike a lot of the Arnhem Land art, there wasn't a sort of strong story in the art itself. It just represented who he was. So when he did a carving, he always had the same painting on it. But the carving itself was the uh, remarkable thing. I mean, the, the Tiwi... It looks like the Tiwis had grave posts very early on. I've seen 
some really early Tiwi grave posts in the South Australian Museum. But when they got steel axes, they've really, really advanced the whole carving of it. And if you see a couple of collections, I mean, you've got the very early grave posts in the uh, South Australian Museum. But if you want, you know, then you move to the grave posts collected in the 1960s by Peter, by Scoogle that are in the New South Wales Art Gallery, and they're much more, they're much, they're much more elaborate, much richer in their design. So obviously the carvers had got got used to working with steel tools and did, did a much more extensive work. I was very lucky too that I, I went to one of the last great Pukamani ceremonies. The Pukamani ceremonies were held on the Tiwis, still art or degree, but not the same. So after someone died, they were buried. And about three to six months after the person died, they had a Pukamani ceremony, which was like a spirit release ceremony. And the one I went to, the, the, the what had happened was a young boy had had a heart problem, gone down to Adelaide and unfortunately died during his operation. And his mum and dad wanted to give him, you know, a proper ceremony. So they actually organised, a, they actually purchased, I think, 12 Pukamani posts. And we, we went up to uh, what's now Pearl and Gympie or Garden Point. The carvers were still working on the posts. And then the, the post, Pukamani posts, were put up in a, in a wall and they formed the backdrop to the actual dancing. And the, the whole, the, 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 the dancing for the ceremony went for two days, including right through the night, on the Saturday night. And then after the ceremony, the poles were sort of were heaped around the young boy's grave and left there, which is the traditional thing. And that was, the, I think, the last great Pukamani ceremony that was held on the Tiwis. And I was very, um, very fortunate to be at that ceremony. Mm. So you saw the sort of the art and its, it, it, its application. What an experience. I mean, that would have been such a, such a great thing to see and witness. And, yeah, I mean, what an amazing experience, as I said. It was. I was very fortunate to be on the island at that time and to see sort of the... Because unfortunately the culture hasn't, you know, continued in that way since that time. So I think I was very lucky to be there with yeah. some covers. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, there's still one of the old men, Bertram Cantilla, was, I think, 10 years old before he actually saw his first white man. He was actually living up the north of the island. Wow. It was during the Second World War and his father his father observed the, the Japanese bombers flying overhead or the aircraft. And he sent Bertram, he got Bertram into a dug up canoe and sent him down absolutely straight to the mission. They knew about the mission, but they hadn't actually visited it, but he wanted to find out what these planes were all about. So he sent Bertram down to the, to the mission to find out what, what the planes were all about. And so that was Bertram's first experience. Incredible. You know, and this was, you Isn't know, it? back in the... And he was, still, he was still there. And I always remember there was another man, Paddy Freddy, who was the last man who apparently knew the full extent of Tiwi language. The Tiwis had another ceremony called Kalama, which was held every year um, when the Kalama yam became ripe, and it was usually held in May... And um, all the elders would sing songs about whatever, so, some of them quite exciting apparently, caused lots of laughter. But at that time, it was the time that people advanced through the culture and apparently it involved various levels of language so that um, people would sing a song and other people would only understand about half what, half what the song was about because of the language in it. But apparently Paddy was the last Tiwi guy that knew the full extent of the, of the complex language issues with Kalama. So that was yeah. also very interesting. That's incredible. What a story. And, yeah, I mean, such a rich culture, aren't they? And especially, you know, being so lucky to be there and experience that part of it. I mean, it would have been an incredible experience. I guess, was it anything culturally that you saw for, as it relates to Indigenous uh, communities that thought, well, hang on, we need to do a better job here. I think we need some more help in this area. Uh, is there anything like that that really prompted you to want to say, hey, I've got to be involved in this and, and study it? Well, I suppose, again, there was the, the stuff I saw later on when I was a medical officer 
and uh, in psychiatry. I mean, it was in a. I mean, one of, one thing that particularly affected me was there was an epidemic, unfortunately, of suicides in the Tiwis in two thousand and three, and one of the young men who killed himself had actually only stayed with us for a couple of you know a couple of weeks before he killed himself. Wow! And that really affected me. He was a young man who was incredibly talented, who was a trainee health worker, and you know had his whole life ahead of him. I really enjoyed. You know, the couple of days he spent with us just sitting down and a couple of weeks later he was dead over a pretty, you know, fairly minor thing, I understood. So that really upset me. And it was sort of living because every, you know, at that stage during that particularly bad year, you know, every couple of weeks we'd be hearing about another person who killed themselves. And so that's really what sort of set me on on understanding more about, you know, I, I, I'd have my work as a psychiatrist, yeah, but sort of particularly involved in, in suicide and what that meant and, and um, understanding that. Let's talk about the suicide rates in Indigenous communities and Tiwi Islands especially there through that period. Why do you think it is that they have higher rates of suicide compared to not only other parts of Australia but in, certainly in the world? Well, again, the again I, I owe a lot to my colleague Ernest Hunter who's done a lot of work in this area, particularly in North Queensland. Yeah. The, I mean, what happened in the Tiwis was probably very similar to what Ernest saw in northwestern Western Australia. In northwestern Western Australia, up till the 60s, there was, a, I think, a fairly happy existence for most of the people who were living on country and working as stockmen and living in family groups. They weren't earning a lot of money. They were being fed and watered by the, by the cattle station owners, but they, weren't, they were living quite harmoniously and in, in a good family environment. And then in the 60s, there was a new stockman's award and they suddenly had to be paid the, the same as everyone else and they were all sacked. And so you had a large migration to the periphery of all the towns there, Wyndham, Broome, Derby. Yeah. And unfortunately, alcohol came in. And so after that, about 20 years after that, is when the first really high suicide rates occurred. And as I said on the Tiwis, I, I remember, you know, it was when the club was open... It was after the club shut at night, all you heard around town was, was domestic violence, you know, particularly women and kids screaming. Is that right? And, I mean, there was a couple of couple of lessons I learned through there. There was, at one stage, there was a, a break into the club and, and the club had to be shut for a couple of months. And it was like the community just took a, a big collective sigh of relief and everyone just calmed down. So rather than, rather than people being beaten up at night, you saw family groups, men, men and women with kids out together, off yeah. to the straight to go fishing and, and it was just like everyone was really happy for about three months. It was, a, it was a small group, a core group of drinkers who took off to town and stayed there. But the vast majority of guys just, well, the club's shut, we don't worry about it. And um, it was a happy, very happy place. And then suddenly the club opened again and it was, uh, it was back to the usual. Thing. That, was, that was a very, uh, yeah, that struck me, particularly at the time, about the effect of alcohol. So really the driving force behind that increase in domestic violence was really through the increased uptake of of alcohol consumption well it was the way that alcohol was served as well i mean in the okay. old days you had to you basically had a it was like a large rugby scrum there were yeah, right. like 500 men gathered um around two very small windows out, out of which you, you you fought your way to the front and finally were given four open cans of warm beer and you fought your way back again lost half your beer in the process and uh-huh. so sat down and uh, people would pe- people would play cards and gamble the beer, but there was, yeah, unfortunately, when you drank as many cans of warm beer, it's not, no wonder everyone was really drunk. And um, yeah, it caused me. But the other the other thing I remember too is another story, was at one stage, I mean, the Tiwis, because of the amount of domestic violence and problems there, they actually had their alcohol 
they went they had to go to half strength beer and i always remember a um i was talking to a police sergeant who was there during the transition and he said before the half strength beer after the club shut at night if you had one one problem in the suburb it would spread like wildfire and a whole bunch of other households would be involved and the police would have to go and sort it out and while they were going out to the to deal with the domestic disturbance they'd see you know this is two o'clock in the morning whatever they'd see tribes of kids on the road because it was safer to be on the road than it was to be in the houses at that time is that right and then after they brought in the mid-strength beer if there was one domestic thing it stayed one rather than spreading to the whole suburb and while the cops were on their way out to the place they'd actually there were no kids on the road they were all at home you know and that was one of the best stories i heard about the effect of alcohol licensing and its effect on community well-being. And this, you know, just a police, a police reminiscence. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's it, it shows the damage it can do in a community, though, doesn't it? I mean, the influence of alcohol and well, the whole issue of trauma. It's just also trauma. I mean, yeah. Mark Winterton today was giving a talk on which very much was on trauma and, and suicide and epigenetics. And I mean, my talk also focuses on that. Mark stole quite a bit of my thunder. But I mean, there's evol- there's evolving evidence now about trauma and the, and the development of severe mental illness. There's uh, very good evidence from Europe. There's a study called Growing Up in Ireland, which looks at the, uh, the experience of early trauma and then the later development of psychosis, and particularly in the context of lack of nurturance during childhood and also then substance abuse. And it's actually been reflected very much in a recent study that's come from North Queensland, Ernest Hunter's group, has just published a study comparing mental health, the prevalence of mental illness in three groups, Torres Strait Islander people who are supposed to have less trauma and more, more cultural support, and Aboriginal people who were born before 1980, before the clubs were opened on the communities, and after 1980. And there's a much higher rate of mental illness generally in the Aboriginal population rather than the Torres Strait Islander population, but also a much greater rate in the, in the mob that were born after 1980 and experienced all that trauma relating to the club. So, you know, again and again, all you see is the early experience of trauma and uh, the later development of mental illness. I mean, what we're looking at is psychosis, severe mental illness, but, I mean, there's a very close connection between the potential for suicide and, and the development of severe, severe mental illness. I'm practising psychiatry now up in Northern Territory for, what, 20 years now? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose I've become a bit of a wise head and I, I've, I, there has been a couple of good stories coming out of it. I mean... There was a good intervention on the Tiwis. A guy called Glenn Norris, who was a very experienced psych nurse, worked with the Tiwis to develop leadership and communication and actually really had a major impact on on the reduction of suicide. And that was mainly community discussion about what they felt about suicide and they wouldn't accept suicide as as an option uh, for distress, but also caring for vulnerable individuals. And... So really getting the community on board with that and yep. yeah, everyone agreeing on the same page that this is not what we want. That's right. Wow. And again, there was a very good intervention at Manangrita with the school. There was a number of young girls that committed suicide in Manangrita and the school developed a social emotional wellbeing program within the school that had a significant uh, reduction, reduction in suicide. What else have you seen over the last 20 years of your time as far as the progress we're making in this area? Well, again, it's really good to have conferences like this. But, I mean, one of the things I actually... I opened my talk with a rock art, bit of rock art from Mount Brockman many years ago. I was very fortunate. One of the people, when I was doing the archaeology in the 70s, we were visited by George Chalupka. He worked for the NT Museum and as a rock... exploring rock art. And he was like one of the world experts on rock art because he'd worked with the old men in the, Eastern, in, in the Western Arnhem area 
they'd passed on and he still had that repository of rock art. And I was very lucky that he was visiting Mount Brockman with his brother over Easter. We took off in a helicopter and went and saw some of the best rock art in the world. And uh, one of those sites was a family of Tasmanian tigers, which, you know, must be... So it was a mother feeding a, a baby with a father looking on protectively. Wow. And I always, you know, the, 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 the painting must be at least 10,000 years old because Tasmanian tigers have been extinct on the mainland for 10,000 years. And that's, you know, it could be 20,000 years old. You know, it's... So, you know, sometime more than 10,000 years ago, uh, an artist gathered what was really essential about a culture and a supportive family. And I always open my talk with that, saying, you know, this, this, an artist really had this vision 10,000 years ago of what was good. And, uh, yeah, so I, so I try and reflect on what was good and how, and how, and how things, unfortunately, have changed. Truly amazing because, I mean, when you think about history, I mean, people talk about, you know, Rome and all these places over in Europe and oh, have you seen these buildings or the pyramids and Incas? And, but really we forget that a lot of the history, the most, the oldest civilizations in the world are here on our doorstep. Yeah, exactly. You know, and to, have, to see a bit of art that's at least 10,000 years old is quite Incredible. remarkable. I mean, the other thing too is I've also done a lot of writing on mental health and mental illness. I mean, my Helen Milroy and I have written chapters on mental health in, in various textbooks. And it's, it's, mental health is quite a different concept to mental illness. I mean, even though I work in a mental health service, it's actually really a mental illness service because all we deal with is mental illness. Mental health is quite a different focus and a different objectivity um, in terms of community development. In fact, you know, in, in early development, it making feel people, people feel good about themselves, you know, so they develop significant mental health resilience. Um, you know, for example, that work that Cheryl Kickett was talking about today, yeah. you know, as part of the program is, is a really good example of a mental health program, yes. uh, which is developing young kids, allowing them to develop resilience and emotional resilience, which is one of the best ways, to, you know, one of the best antidotes against, uh, against later mental illness and suicide. The two terms are used sometimes interchangeably, but there is, in fact, quite a difference between the two. And so do you have any, I know you've written lots on it, but do you have any other thoughts around that? Well, again, I think a lot of it relates to cultural support, the power of culture and, and a connection with culture and feeling like you've got something that really you belong to and also a safe childhood, a safe childhood where you feel like you're growing up at night where you can be in better sleep and feeling comfortable rather than a high level of trauma because there's no doubt that stress, as Mark was saying today with the epigenetics, I mean, stress does have mm. a significant effect and if, you, if, if you've got a higher flight and flight because you never feel safe... Yeah. It certainly does impact. So, again, stressing, stressing the uh, thing. I mean, also, I think there's been some good stuff. I mean, the, the Groot Island mob have been putting a lot of money into education. So they've actually been working. They've actually developed trade schools and other things. So the kids go to trade school, they, they learn, and they've got jobs at the end of it in, in, in tourism and in, in, in the mining industry. And I always remember, again, one of the things that happened on the Tiwis was in the, in the 60s or the 70s, 60s must have been, the mission actually sent a whole bunch of Tiwi guys off to trade schools down south. And so what you had when you finished your work, what you had was Tiwi carpenters building houses, Tiwi plumbers fixing stuff, Tiwi mechanics fixing your motor car. And so kids could actually see there was, if you went and had education, there was something at the end of it because mm. there were a whole bunch of people working in craft groups. And unfortunately, you know, then there was a defunding of, of that sort of work and it was cheaper to bring in white, white contractors than it was to keep on skilling up the Tiwi so they could build, you know, they could, they could actually work in their own community. And I always think that's, you know, to my mind, it's education and, and work, cultural connection, which are the big, 
big, yeah. big uh, supports for mental health. What are some of the other key risk, risk factors in developing mental illness in our Indigenous population? We've mentioned a couple already with trauma. We've also talked about you know, the impacts of alcohol as well. What else is there that's social media? Is well, that well, social media, again, what? some of my slides. Um, it's quite interesting. The, I think social media is a very invidious influence on individuals. There's a, I was very lucky. I, met, uh, I went to a conference a couple of years ago. I met Tanuta Wasserman, who's part of a very big European study called the Sales Study. And she's studied, I think, almost 12,000 adolescents in Europe and they actually found, in terms of suicidality, and they found three groups. There was a safe group, there was a high-risk group, but in the end they found this, this sort of invisible middle group who were very, had a very similar suicide risk to the high-risk group and no one knew about it, and the invisible group had weight issues, sleep issues, and they were spending all their time on social media and um, were, much more, were very vulnerable to, I think, because they... They hadn't got out and about in the playground and mixed with other kids and learned how to deal with things. They were much more vulnerable to social media trials and other people. And so, yeah, that, I think that was a very clear indication about how dangerous social media can be to these vulnerable kids. And it's interesting because I, I was at another conference a couple of years ago and the um, people talked about digital immigrants and digital natives and put up a slide. Digital immigrants and digital natives are actually an education concept rather than a, than a, um, a health concept. Is actually looking at the way that IT affects the brain. And I've got a slide in my presentation of... So a digital immigrant is someone like myself who comes, you know, gets their iPhone, gets really excited about it because you can make phone calls and take photos. <laughs> a, a digital um, native is someone who can, you know, realise there's a lot more potential on an iPhone than I've ever thought of. And, um, and they actually... Because they've actually grown up with it, with the, with the IT. But I've actually got a slide of, of digital natives and digital immigrants doing with a functional MRI doing the same task. And the digital native is using a lot more of their brain in the task than the digital immigrant. So it's like that the human brain has evolved with the IT. It's an evolutionary process. And again, I suppose there's good things about that in terms of brain potential, but there's also potentially bad things about it in terms of the, the effect of IT on you, and particularly the negative effect, and, and therefore the potential for very harmful harmful things going on yeah and the indigenous i mean the use of social media is quite high isn't it, amongst the indigenous community well i'm again i'm aware because my wife's you know relatives i'm aware of all the bullying and harassment that happens within within that and aware of the potential dangerous effect because she's constantly dealing with some pretty toxic stuff from her relatives on, on digital media so yeah mm. Well, are there any other challenges you wanted to talk about as it relates to the health and well-being of our Indigenous populations? Well, for us, again, the, the main drama, I haven't brought that in the topic, but is, is chronic and cannabis. Although cannabis, I do mention that, and there's, we, the Territory has much higher rates of substance abuse than other. But again, the influence of cannabis on vulnerable individuals, other so growing up in Ireland study, and the study from North Queensland indicated that people with mental illness have got a, a vulnerability but they've also got increased use of cannabis. But it's not just the drug itself. And I mean, we've been dealing with a lot of really psychotic people in Darwin who've been using chronic and other things. But it's also the pressure. There's, I mean, my wife goes to the community and all she, she, she doesn't like going home now because all she gets is pressure to give money for cannabis. Mm. So she's constantly having people being dramatic and insulting her 
because they want money for cannabis. And then you've actually got the whole issue of the dealers and potential payback and criminal stuff, people not paying up debts. So yeah. lot, you know, I'm aware of a number of people who have committed suicide because they had money to drug dealers and, and, and weren't able to deal with the pressure of that. So, I mean, there's a, there's a really very, very toxic culture around substance abuse on the communities and what it's doing. And, in fact, one of my... We're very lucky. We've got our, one of our first Indigenous psychiatrists in the Territory, Kane Vella, a very talented young man who was... He was a senior administrator in, in uh, ATSIC before he decided and before he did other things and, and, and worked in medicine. And now he's a consultant psychiatrist. And he came to see me the other day and said, Rob, there's a real problem on the Tiwis. We've got to deal with it, you know, in terms of substance abuse and mental health issues. So we're planning to actually address the, the Tiwi Land Council about the problem and see what, what the community, in a similar way to what happened with the suicide many years ago, see if we can develop a community response. Yeah, I was going to say, so the potential solutions to that is really getting that community intervention, getting the leaders together and talking about it. That's correct. It has to yeah. be a community response. The community has to own the response, otherwise it's not going to work. Tell us, as you look forward, what hopes do you have that things will improve and uh, where do you see things going over the next five to ten years as it relates to the health and wellbeing of our Indigenous populations? Well, again, it's education. I think education is the key. Year 12 is essential, I think. For um, But there has to be real work at the end of it. I mean, all my girls are, are taxpayers. They're, they're all working and, and creating and stuff and I'm very happy you know, to see them develop, getting on with their life. But I was always very strong on you must finish year 12 and do stuff. Mm. And they've, both, they've all developed their creative life beyond that after year 12. I think it's a – and again, the, the, I was very impressed with what happened in the Manangrita School. Their, what they, on their stress in education, the stress on the social and emotional wellbeing curriculum. So kids felt empowered to actually uh, have some control over their emotional things. Unfortunately, yeah, some of the communities have got very limited participation in education. And I think really that's the future, a very strong focus on education, a, a strong focus on real work and looking at developing the, I suppose, the potential communities um, so that people have actually got work there. And I mean, um, and Pat Dudgeon and constantly talked about the Canadian experience where communities that had a very high cultural support where people were actually, you know, had cultural, you had cultural policemen, nurses, ambulance who were all part of the community rather than people coming in. Yeah. And the suicide rates. So in the end, it gets back to what was happening on the Tiwis, where you need to train people up to work so they've got a job to go to. They can provide leadership and support within that community. And other kids can then see they've got a future. I think that's... But it takes a long time to build that, and you need a commitment. It's quite expensive to actually train people up rather than to bring contractors in, but you have to have that commitment yeah. to develop resources within the community. I mean, I'm very supportive of the current range of programs that are happening. Because, again, it's, it's, it's developing skills. It's also developing a, a real process where people come, you know, support the country and, 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 and go back to the country and find, you know, can educate about country. And I think that's a really good program. So I'm very supportive of, of, the, of the range of programs that are happening in the, in the Territory. And, and the access to those sorts of educational programs now is getting better for especially people in rural and remote areas? That's correct, yeah. yeah. And, and the government, I think, is starting to recognise that and, and really supporting it. Any other things you think moving forward will become critical in helping either be a tool, part of the, the, the tool belt in helping improve social-emotional well-being? Well, again, I think, you know, the work that, that Helen's done, Helen Milroy, over the years in terms of, yeah. you know, there's many more. When Helen started, there were only, I think, two or three Aboriginal doctors in Australia. Got to see if Helen and the other people in Aida, there's a lot more Aboriginal doctors, medical students, a lot more Aboriginal lawyers, so kids can actually see role models to, to aspire to. I mean, one of the good things about the Territory is we've got probably 
more women and more Aboriginal people as politicians than anywhere else in Australia. So it's really good to see that leadership in, in the political sector as well as, you know, a lot more women in the sector as well, which is great. You know, to have role models such as Melendiri McCarthy, who was a member of the NT Parliament and is now a senator, you know, is again uh, something that people can aspire to and see that they've got a future. Yeah. Robert, tell us what's your future hold for you? What, what are you coming up? Yeah, tell us about I, I think retirement you? beckons, but not, not for a few years. <laughs> I'm enjoying the ride at the moment. I mean, the other thing is too, I've actually, I've actually enjoyed my work in the AMA. I mean, I've, I've been very – one of the reasons I joined the AMA was because of its advocacy for Indigenous health. And I think that a couple of my proudest moments in the AMA have been pushing very hard for a National Centre for Disease Control for, for a number of years, mainly – not so much for COVID, this was pre-COVID because there's been an epidemic of syphilis in central Australia. The, the uh, epidemic started in Queensland when Campbell Newman defunded sexual health and it spread to NT, South Australia and Western Australia and it's been very a very poorly coordinated response. I always remember asking Susan Lay when she was Federal Health Minister about what she was going to do about the syphilis epidemic um, at, at an AMA dinner and to her credit she actually developed a task force to look at it so, wow. But I, I think, uh, you know, that was my, always my argument for a Centre for Disease Control, that Australia could do a lot better in the way it coordinated disease. But my other proud moment, I, I was very upset about the rates of rheumatic heart disease in, in young kids in the Territory. And, it's, you know, rheumatic heart disease is 20 times more prevalent in Aboriginal kids than it is in the rest of Australia. The, the AMA used to produce a yearly um, health report card on, on a factor of Aboriginal health. And I lobbied quite hard for the AMA to do one on rheumatic heart disease. And they did that. And as a result, well, one of the things that came from that was uh, uh, at the end RHD coalition, which is formed of clinicians, researchers and uh, other people. And I mean, Ken Wyatt was a, was a significant leader in the end RHD process. Anyway, as a result of that, I heard about a vac- potential vaccine development and I managed to get Jonathan Karapetis talking to Greg Hunt um, wow. And a couple of years later, there's been $30 million devoted to a vaccine for, for streptococcus, group A strep. And my understanding is it's very close to um, being developed. So that you, if, if you can That's give every amazing. Aboriginal kid in Australia the, yeah. the vaccine and we can stop rheumatic heart disease... Yeah, I think if I've, if I've done one thing in medicine, that's probably my proudest achievement. I mean, other people, other people did it as well. It wasn't just me, but, it, you know, I think that was a pretty good achievement. What a, what a fantastic thing to be a part of. And you mentioned your role there at your president of the NT branch for the Australian I, Medical Association. Association. Yeah. And you've also been chair of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Mental Health Committee. Yep. Rands it. That was, that was great. I worked with, I worked with, that was a real privilege. I worked with great people there. Um, Ellen Milroy, Ernest Hunter, mm-hmm. Neil Phillips. It was, it was a great committee. We actually, um, one of the, we did a number of things. We introduced the, or we, we, we governed the Mark Sheldon Award. Mark Sheldon was a, a very talented young man. He was an early career psychiatrist who was very interested in Aboriginal mental health. He, he actually worked in Central Australia and wrote his thesis about Aboriginal mental health, which has become like a, a standard text now for how to do, to do uh, Aboriginal mental health. Unfortunately, just after he got his uh, consultant, he died of bowel cancer. And uh, his parents were very distressed, and they set up a, a foundation to in his memory. Yeah. And when the college every year awards a, um, a prize for the person who's done most for Indigenous mental health in Australia and New Zealand. So I was the custodian of that for the first six years, and I was very proud to give it to a range of people, including Helen Milroy 
and uh, Pat Swan, uh, now Pat Delaney, who wrote the Ways Forward document. So mm. Pat, you know, we weren't, we just didn't give it to psychiatrists, we gave it to other people. And when Helen was chair of the committee, I was very supportive in, in giving it to two um, Aboriginal healers, you know, so they were actually awarded yeah. the, the, the Mark Sheldon Award from the college. The other thing we did was we actually developed a website, college website, in, in coordination with Beyond Blue to make sure we educated all the trainees. They had a very all, – all, all trainee psychiatrists had a very good educational resource about Indigenous mental health. And we made sure that all trainees had a proper curriculum about Aboriginal mental health. Helen and I used to run workshops at college congresses to make sure that all trainees who weren't getting it from their state branch got – good education from Aboriginal health workers and other people about mental health. So I was very proud about that. And um, so, we, we, you know, we've done yeah. some good work on that way as well. You've been involved and done a lot of great things over your time and obviously you've still got a few things going on, but uh, with you mentioned retirement not too far away. Just two more questions. One is you've already mentioned a few people, but who, who, who has been most influential on helping you shape who you are today and as it relates to your, your role and your profession? Well, again, Pat Rebgitz was always a, was a standout in terms of his dedication to something a bit bigger than just medicine and that he had a, a vision for um, Aboriginal health and for, for working with community. I suppose Helen has been, a, been, been an inspiration mm. as well. She's just constantly fantastic. Um, done sure. remarkable things, you know, with her career and with the, with the Royal Commission and just with the, with the way she's inspired, a whole, you know, other people to do medicine. Mm. So, um, yeah, there have been those people. And, again, I think I've come back to my boss, Raphael. He, um, Raphael Apiotimi, he was a remarkable man. He was a, a very kind man, very generous, you know, and, and, and for a young person just out of uni, couldn't get a better boss. And I'm just spending, spending three years with him, just watching him and learning, you know, about how you, how you could be a, a really important person but also a, a generous person um, was, was an inspiration to me. Yeah, those, uh, they can go together, those yep. two, can't they? So it's, yep. a, it's a, a great lesson. Tell us, Robert, how can people get a hold of you if they want to know more or get in touch? How can they get in touch? Well, again, they can always uh, give, send me an email to all lowercase, robert.parker at nt.gov.au or you can usually get hold of me through the AMA in, in, in the Territory through the CEO. They can always find me. Congratulations on uh, on a great career to date so, uh, and achieving so much in your time. You can clearly tell you're very passionate, not only about Indigenous social emotional well-being, but also the history, the culture, the art. I mean, it's and it is all rolled into one to some degree as well. So you can see how that path's taken, uh, taken your journey on that path. It's been great to hear your story. Is there anything you want to say in closing? No, no. Thank you very much. It's been very interesting having you talk. Thanks, Robert. I appreciate it. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.